0: Thanks, Andrew and Lucky. Does someone want to preach on this passage for me tonight? It's a great uh, passage from the Scriptures. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Just to uh, warn you, there'll be a question time at the end of the sermon, so you're, you're welcome to ask any question you want about this passage, or you can fill out the, uh, the or slip with your questions, and I'll answer them via email. But let me pray. Father, thanks for a chance to meet uh, together to look at the Scriptures. Uh, Lord, we need help, we need your Spirit, and when things that often go against what the world says so we we pray that you give us is to hear them and to accept them and I ask that for for Jesus sake amen uh, we live in a, a sex mad world don't we every every magazine that you you get it flaunts sex uh, a movie without sex is is a rarity these days uh, i sit at my desk and my my inbox tells me i need advanced nasal technology for longer lasting sex Uh, you walk down the road and there's a brothel uh, there's a a sex shop, uh, there's a strip club there are two men holding hands, there are two women kissing on the corner our world is obsessed with sex and, and it flaunts it did you know that Australia is obsessed with porn? A third of all DVDs bought in this country, a third of all DVDs bought in this country are, are pornographic. Uh, 70% of of internet porn is viewed between 8am and 5pm on a Monday to Friday. More money is spent on porn in this country than on the music industry, theatre and the sport industry combined. Obsessed with porn. And we celebrate alternative lifestyles, you know, cohabitation is now just the norm. And you can do as long as you, whatever you like, as long as you're happy. Two consenting adults, as long as you're happy, you can do whatever you like. Whether you're married, single, same sex, or underage. That is Sydney today, a sex mad city. And that was Corinth uh, 2,000 years ago, a sex mad city. In Corinth, you had a a thousand prostitutes. In Corinth, they had alternative lifestyle parades. They were sleeping around. You had wife swapping and swinging parties and pornography and paedophilia and bisexuality. That was Corinth then. That is Sydney today. And we sit here in church and we say, oh, but that's our world. We're the church. We're the Christians. We're, We're the people of God. Sure, we're the church where... A minister can have an affair with his best friend's wife and we just sweep it under the carpet. With a church where priests abuse innocent boys and we just sweep it under the carpet. With a church where we we celebrate same sex unions amongst our bishops. And with a church where as long as you're two consenting adults and as long as you're happy, who are we to judge? With a church that are open minded and tolerant and progressive. If you want, with a church with the slogan Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not, lest you be judged. And let's not point the finger if we dug deep here in Kirby. You know, we'd find extramarital affairs, uh, we'd find people addicted to porn, and we'd even find people visiting prostitutes. So so the question is this uh, what do we do when people in our church flaunt their ungodliness? What do we do when people claim to be Christians, but their lifestyle is unrepentant? They stand in church, they sing song, they pray the prayers, but they're sleeping around or they're sexually immoral moral, and they're not ashamed of it. That's the word that Paul uses in verse 1, it's porneia. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, porneia. It's a word that means sexual sin in general. We'd love, Paul, to, to list the exact sexual sins that we're not allowed to commit. And then we have a get-out clause. He never mentions uh, or, or sex outside of marriage. He never mentions masturbation. According to the Bible, sex is about one man and one woman in this antiquated thing called marriage for life. And anything outside of that is porneia. It's sexually immoral. Wrong. Whether it's sex outside of marriage, sex, sex before marriage, inviting a third person into the marriage, gay sex, bisexual sex, it's wrong, wrong, wrong and yet apparently there are Christians, men and women who claim to follow Jesus and they're flaunting their immorality now what do you do with those people? it's not just sex Uh, sex is the easy target what about greed? what about greed? look at verse 11 I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy what about the person who is obsessed with money. The Christian man who, who lavishes millions of dollars on, on buildings and holidays and food and always wants more. It's been said the most common, most destructive sin in the Western church is greed or covetousness. It's here in Kirby. Lee. Christians hungry after more and more and more money and never satisfied. We don't bat an eyelid. Or what about the Christian man who is idolatrous, verse 11, puts things above God, or, or slanderous, they verbally abuse people, they, they assassinate people's characters, or, or the drunkard, verse 11, or the swindler, uh, the financial mismanagement, the fraud, the addiction, it's all sin. And we're all susceptible, aren't we? Let me be clear, we're all sinners here. None of us here are Perfect. Paul is not talking in this passage, listen carefully, he's not talking about the Christian who slips up occasionally. The occasion when we give in to that temptation and we we satisfy the flesh and we're wrapped with guilt and we plead with forgiveness and we're so ashamed. He's not talking about that repentant, forgiven sinner. What he's talking about here is the Christian man and woman who, who just doesn't care about sin anymore. It becomes their norm and their lifestyle and they live it, they parade it, there's no guilt, there's no repentance, there's no sorrow, there's no concepts even wrong. Now how should the young, hip, urban church respond to that? See, my fear is that we we still talk about tolerance and open-mindedness and gentle warnings and the Bible talks about discipline, church discipline. It's not popular, we don't practice it very often. It's foreign to most of us, but this is our big point tonight. Listen carefully. Ongoing, unrepentant sin in the church must be disciplined. Ongoing, unrepentant sin in church must be disciplined. There are two sins in this chapter. The obvious one is the sin of the man. Look at it with me. Verse 1, the incest. A man has his father's wife. A man who claims to be a believer is in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother and that is just wrong it doesn't matter whether his father's dead, it doesn't matter how old the woman is according to Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 22, according to our conscience that is wrong even the pagan world looks at that and says that is wrong but the problem is we, we read that verse and, and our, our, our minds start to list the questions You know, how can a Christian man have done such a thing? what exactly has he done? How long has he been going on? Was the wife a Christian? And we miss the point. This man stands in church, flaunts his ongoing immorality, but the question is, what does a church do about it? That's the second sin. It's probably the more serious sin. Paul spends more time talking about the church than about the man and his mother see the church is god 's temple the church is god 's body. The church is supposed to be the the visible display of, of the beauty of christ, and that 's the sin. The church had a responsibility to to protect the purity of the body. The whole congregation is called to cherish purity in the church to love what is good, to hate what is evil and this church it didn 't just ignore the sin. It didn't just tolerate the sin, it celebrated it. Look at verse 2. A man has his father's wife and, and you are proud. You are arrogant, you are boasting. Pride is a name given to those alternative lifestyle parades. The couple sit in church and the church does nothing about it. And you may be sitting there thinking, or maybe the church is saying, uh, God is a God of love. <laughs> Read your Bible, what God loves is his holiness and his name and the church being the bride of Christ, that's what God loves. And maybe the church is saying, Oh, if two consenting adults do it, well, who are we to judge? Who are we? We're the bride of Christ. The church that bears God's name. Or maybe they're saying, oh, we're just an affirming church. What the Bible affirms is repentance. Repentance and holiness. Do you see the issue? We immediately think, uh, how could a Christian man do such a thing? But for Paul, the bigger question is, how could a church allow this to go unchecked and undisciplined see the right response isn't smugness it is sorrow, it's not high five it's it's utter horror that's verse 2 you're proud shouldn't you rather be filled with grief and put out your fellowship with the man who did this shouldn't you grieve, shouldn't you be filled with mourning shouldn't you have deep anguish in your soul That's the right response to unrepentant sin, isn't it? You see, in some ways, this passage is not really about church discipline. It's about the holiness of God. It's about God's holiness. If we've seen God in his glory, if, like Isaiah, we've said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the only response is grief at sin. William Barclay said, our one security against sin lies in our still being shocked at it. And this church is not shocked, it's proud. And Paul says, instead of welcoming this man, the right response is to kick him out of church. Notice that discipline flows from the grief. Uh, You must mourn before you act. But verse 2, put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Excommunicate him. Let me be clear here. You don't just throw people out of church at the first (laughs) offence. What the Bible says is that if you're fighting a sinner, if you see somebody rather who is sinning, what we're called to do is get alongside them, Matthew 18, get alongside them, sit down one on one, open up the Bible with them, read the scriptures with them and urge them to repent. If they refuse to repent, you bring in two or three other people and you urge them to repent. If they still refuse to repent, you bring in the elders if they still refuse to repent then this is his case you bring it before the church but let me say it should never have got to this stage how could it get to a stage where there's a man in church sleeping with his stepmother and the church says nothing about it surely if Christians were taking Godliness seriously this man should have been taken aside a long time ago and we sit here and we say "Oh, it wasn't really my place to, to rebuke him yes it was oh, I was too busy too busy to correct sin like this or the 21st century idol if you want relationship, I needed a relationship with him before I could rebuke him I had to sit down with him and understand the situation look at the history before I could rebuke him, rubbish Uh, when, when a Christian woman is habitually sleeping with her boyfriend unrepentantly and flaunting it I don't need to sit down with her to tell her it's wrong When a Christian man is habitually slandering and character assassination, I didn't sit down with him and tell him it's wrong. Paul says in verse 3, I'm not even there, but I can pass judgment. Even though I'm not with you, I've already passed judgment on the man who did this. Friends, can I urge you, if you are flirting with sin right now, habitually stop, repent, and change. Please don't get to the stage where you're parading your sin and you're so entrenched that you just can't see it's wrong and if you see a brother and sister and they're flirting the loving thing to do is to take them aside and to warn them and to plead with them and if it gets to the stage where they refuse to do that then yes bring it before the church and discipline does that sound harsh? does that sound unloving? it will sound harsh and it will sound unloving if you don't appreciate and understand the holiness of God and how much he loves his church. I've been forced to think this week about whether we ever do this as a church, whether we've got a, a low view of God and a, and a low view of God's church. Ongoing and sin in the church must be disciplined. Let me give, give you four quick reasons why. Firstly, for the good of the sinner. For the good of the sinner. Look at verse 4. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you gather together, And I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. When when you gather together as church, hand this man over to Satan so the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Hand him over to Satan. It just means treat him as an unbeliever. It's a phrase used in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Hymenaeus, Philetus were handed over to Satan. See, The church is a sphere of the spirit and the world is a spirit of Satan. Satan is a god of this world if you want. And Paul is saying here, uh, put him back into the world. Make him forfeit all the privileges of belonging to this great community called church. He's not welcome at the Lord's table. Treat him as a pagan. And again, we won't do that unless we appreciate what we've got here as church. When we gather together, in the name of the Lord Jesus, the, the Spirit is present, and we, we benefit from all these privileges no, we encourage one another, we teach one another, we, we carry each other's burden, we grow in grace. But to be chucked outside of all of that, to be outside the grace of the church. No, we're told that's unloving, isn't it, to kick someone out of church? It's the most loving thing we can do to somebody. We're told, if you really loved me, you just accept me as I am. No, if I really loved you, I'd throw you out of church. Why? So you be restored to Christ, so you be brought back to Christ. That is the aim, that's the purpose of verse 5, not punishment but restoration. Verse 5, so the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So his, his sinful nature, his flesh might be destroyed. Like he might stop living the godless way and turn back to Christ. So he, he would crucify his sinful nature and be brought back to the fellowship. That is Paul's aim. He puts him out and prays continually, Lord, please wake him up, bring him back to Christ. So on the day of the Lord, with that last day in mind, it is much more loving to send the habitual unrepentant sinner out of the fellowship so they might wake up and on that last day we might see them in glory. Much better to do that than to tolerate the sin now and to see them never turn back to Christ. I saw this happen once, only once in my seven years so far in ministry. Church in the UK where a married man was in an adulterous affair with another married woman. Came to church regularly, claimed to still be a Christian, still masquerading as a Christian. And The pastor took him aside one on one and urged him to repent. He refused. So the group of elders got together and they urged him to repent and he refused. As the church got together and they asked this man not to come to the Lord's table. It was about a year later, as a, as a happy ending to the story, about a year later that he recognised he'd done wrong. He talked about missing the church, missing his family, missing the teaching, but most of all missing God, and missing God's grace. And he came back. That's a repentant man. That We, we discipline for, for the sake of the sinner, for the good of the sinner. Let me say we're all sinners. Of course we're all sinners but hopefully we're repentant sinners. If you walk into church every week and you're trying to live for Christ and you're failing but repenting, you're welcome. We offer you the hand of love. Uh, but if you walk into church every week, you're parading your sin and you just don't care. We must discipline because salvation's at stake. Uh, the problem is our church is in such a mess that you know, if, if one church acts and, and disciplines and they just walk up the road to another church, And they're welcome with open arms, no questions asked. We discipline for the good of the sinner. Uh, Secondly, we discipline for the health of the church. Verses 6 and 7. Your boasting isn't good. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. He's saying, remember, God's church should be pure, it should be pursuing purity but but sin corrupts and sin spreads Uh, sin is like a cancer you know you can't see the cancer you might not feel the cancer but if you leave it too late leave it unchecked you can remove the tumour but actually it's spread too far it's like a contagious disease you can't spot it when you do spot it you might cut it off at the source but actually it's too late because it's spread and that is sin in church it just spreads as the church embraces materialism and embraces consumerism and alcoholism, as we tolerate slander, as we tolerate sexual morality as we give in to all these things and stop fighting, well, the church becomes more and more and more and more evil sin is infectious, it's a bit like yeast according to verse 6 if you know your Bibles, uh, the Passover was a festival where the people celebrated redemption uh, freedom from Egypt Living a new life. Complete break with the past. A life for God. And before Passover they would sweep the whole house. And and they'd get rid of every hint of yeast. Why? Because a bit of yeast in your bread. And it would cause a whole batch to rise. And at Passover they wanted unleavened bread. And so they'd work hard to make sure. Not even a speck remained. Same with sin. Verse 7 get rid of the old yeast, that you may be the new batch without yeast, as you really are. He says, be who you are. Just know that sin for sin is insidious. Let me give you three examples. So I suppose a man is in this church and he's known to be in an adulterous relationship with a married woman. And we're tempted to say, well, well nobody's perfect. But if we don't discipline when the next affair starts, it's really hard to rebuke him, isn't it? And over time, it just becomes more and more and more the norm. Or, or take money. You've got a, a, a very rich Christian who is lavishing millions on their, their renovations, and there's no there's no concept of generosity. They just hoard and hoard and hoard all their wealth. They claim to be a Christian, and we never rebuke them. And then more and more rich people come into church, and generosity is never promoted. And it's okay to hoard, it's okay to be greedy. It's just become acceptable practice. Or take pornography. You know, the person who has given up of fighting they just can't be bothered to fight anymore and the church said that's okay, look, it's too hard for him, too hard for her. But now it just becomes a norm. It's okay to be addicted to porn. That's the nature of sin. It, it doesn't sit in a corner. It, it spreads and it fights and it kills the church. And friends, we are all responsible. We're not individuals here. See, my sin affects you, and your sin affects me. And when you're sexually immoral, others will feel it. When I compromise, you will feel it. it it's a bit like you know, ever walked across those those um, rope bridges, and you've got a single line, single rope if you want at the bottom, and two ropes to hand put your hands on and it's really unstable trying to walk across this river it's really unstable when you're on it, put, put five or six people on that, on that rope bridge what happens when one person is larking around? you all struggle, that's the church, we're all connected we've lost our sense of corporate identity, we are the church not you individually, we as a body and when one person sins it infects a whole lot and that's why that's why we discipline for the good of the church Thirdly, we discipline for our integrity to the world. The church is supposed to be God's counter cultural standards before the world. Look at verse 9. I've written to you my, my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all mean the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's saying, don't mishear me. I'm not saying take yourself out of the world. I'm not saying isolate yourself from the world so that every night you spend with Christians at Christian meetings just in case you're tempted. The people of the world are immoral. They are unclean. They they are swindlers. They are greedy. But they don't claim to be believers, do they? What I'm talking about is a church. Verse 11. I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or a sister. But is sexually immoral or greedy or idolatry. with such a man don't even eat. Eating was was just a sign of fellowship, a sign of unity, a sign sign of oneness. He says, if someone is parading their ungodliness, don't associate with them. Why? Think about it. For For the immoral brother, you're communicating a false assurance, aren't you? You're almost implying it's okay for them. But what are you saying to the world? when when priests abuse young boys it's kind of brushed on the carpet what does the world think of Christ? Uh, when the world sees Christians who have no compassion and ongoing greed what does the world think of Christ? if there's a person who calls us a believer and the church does nothing about their sin what does the world think of Christ? see we are called to be judgmental you're not going to like this we are called to be judgmental (laughs) I wait for the emails to flow. That's what Paul says in in verse 12. We are called to judge. Uh, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside so expel the, the wicked person from among you. He says God will judge the world. Leave that to God. It's your job to look at the church and to make judgments. And I want to say we've got it so wrong. The church does exactly the opposite, doesn't it? The church spends its whole time passing comment on the world, trying to Christianise the world, expecting the world to behave according to God's standards when they don't claim to be Christians. And all the time, all the time, ongoing unrepentant sin is there, untreated under their very nose. There's a, there's a girl at work, and she's living with her boyfriend. And we as Christians are tempted to think, "Oh, I can't associate with her. She's she's immoral." Well, she's not claiming to be a Christian. Your job is to get alongside her and to love her and to share Christ with her. If she's a believer, then treat her differently. Or take it one step further. There's a man at work who is living with his boyfriend and you're tempted to think, I can't associate with him. But they're not claiming to be Christ, are they? They're not claiming to be Christians. Let God judge them. We're called just to live among among them and to share the gospel with them. Uh, But in the church, it's different. In the church, it is different. And again, I just wonder whether if we took this seriously, if we took sin seriously and discipline seriously, maybe the unbelieving world would say there is something different about them. Uh, Lastly, we discipline for the honour of Christ. For the honour of Christ. Look at verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's saying, if you're here today and you're here to celebrate n- not the sacrifice of a lamb with a few bitter herbs, uh, not an animal slaughtered temple, but you're here to remember a man called Jesus Christ who, who died for you, who bore the full wrath of God's anger on his shoulders for you. If he's your Passover lamb and your substitute and your protection he gave his life for you, then just be who you are. Be the holy person of God that, that God has called you to be. Turn away from your sin. Pursue the purity you have been cleansed so our whole Christian life is like a festival. The ongoing celebration of forgiveness when you've understood how much it costs God that's the reason that we discipline not just because the church's name is at stake not just because of the institution called the church I don't care about that, what I care about is the name of Jesus and the honour of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and I pray as a church we will be disciplining people not to make ourselves feel good or puffed up but because we we love Jesus so much we want people to honour him And to glorify him as their Passover lamb. It's not popular. But we're called to discipline. Why? For the good of the sinner to bring them back to Christ. For the health of this church to stop sin spreading. For the integrity to our world so that believers see us to be different. But first and foremost, for the honour of Jesus. Because you want people to say, I love you, Jesus, and I take sin seriously. Because you've paid the greatest price for me. Thank you Jesus. Let me pray. I'll invite the muses up. And we're going to sing a song to respond.